Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome John Williams to the show today. He is the founder of Shadow Government Statistics, analysis behind and beyond government economic reporting. He has this electronic newsletter service that exposes and analyzes flaws in current U.S. government economic data and reporting, as well as in certain private sector numbers and provides an assessment of underlying economic and financial conditions net of financial market and political hype. He has a background as an economist. He talks about hyperinflation, about the real GDP, the deficit, the long-term liabilities on the obligations of our future of the United States of America, of the money supply, the consumer price index, unemployment. Today in the conversation, we're going to put together some of the things he said before, but this show is not only for people with heavy-duty financial background and expertise, but it is also for the layperson today so that you have a frame of reference to see and know clearly what's going on. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Williams to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Kim. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've listened to several of your interviews most recently since the S&P downgrade of the U.S. dollar kindly explain the GDP for everybody and what constitutes the GDP from the traditional government statistics to how you're translating GDP? Well, the the gross domestic product, which is the the basis for the GDP abbreviation, supposed to be the government's broadest measure of economic activity. I guess it is. It's probably the most uh, meaningless of its uh, economic measures. Uh, it's so heavily uh, distorted with underlying assumptions and uh, and biases. Uh, it, uh, it it really is uh, not worthy of the attention that it, it gets in the uh, financial markets and the press when it's reported. But um, consider for a moment uh, the the number that they give you is. Uh, uh, an annualized quarter-to-quarter change in the in the level of economic activity adjusted for inflation. Uh, the uh, their confidence interval around that uh, around their uh, headline number that <clears throat> moves markets is basically plus or minus uh, three percentage points, and that, that's about average growth. Um, so most of the time, you don't know if the number really is. Uh, uh, a, a gain or a minus, and uh, that's with the numbers as reported. Uh, it is uh, one, one of the big problems with the way it's uh, reported today is uh, uh, tied to the way it's deflated, the way inflation is applied to it, as I'll, I guess we'll be discussing. Uh, I'll contend that inflation is significantly understated uh, due to changes in uh uh, methodologies over time, and when you look to deflate the GDP to to put it into constant dollar terms, uh, the lower the rate of inflation that you use, the lower the rate of inflation that you're dividing by, the stronger the inflation adjusted growth rate is, and and, and vice versa. Uh, so that if the uh, inflation rate is uh, being understated, then the the real which is a term that economists use for inflation-adjusted, the real GDP, is um, 
is overstated and overstated significantly. Uh, I, I figure by uh, minimally three percentage points. But beyond that, uh, the, the, there are tremendous uh, gimmicks and assumptions in it. For, for, for example, uh, uh, the government imputes um, income for, for individuals. If you have a banking account and the bank doesn't charge you um, interest or any fee, uh, that, that's considered intre- interest income uh, to you. And they put that in there as interest income. Uh, they also calculate if you're if you're a homeowner um, how much rent you'd pay yourself to rent your own house from yourself. Uh, that's in there in the in the income category, and um, and if, of course when you get an inflation you'll find that uh, how, how much you increase uh, the, the payment of the rent to yourself for the house that you live in is a major uh, component of the uh, uh, of the uh, inflation measure the, the CPI. Um, it's it's just a nonsense number. Over over the decades, they keep trying to uh, improve it theoretically, and uh, each time they they change it, it, not only does it change the current history, but it restates economic history back to 1929. That 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 never happened. Um, it is uh, I, I think a much better number in terms of. Uh, uh, Getting an idea of what's happening to the economy is looking at the uh, the payroll employment numbers that the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out on a monthly basis. There are some serious flaws with that, but over time it gets adjusted and and you get an accurate measure of what's happening. And, and contrary to the uh, uh, all, all the press that uh, the, the employment numbers have gotten, they, they don't lag the economy; they're, they're coincident with the economy. Employment moves up and down as economic activity does. It got the impression people got the impression it was lagging, and they make the case that it's lagging because the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the it's a private organization that uh, in its uh, earlier days helped to develop the GDP series or did develop the GDP series, which is later used by the government. Uh, the government said we you know we we don't want to be in uh, the process of calling whether or not we're in a recession, we'll leave that with you. So the National Bureau of Economic Research is the defining authority as to whether or not we have a recession. And uh, last couple of times around, uh, they've called the end of the recession extremely early, uh, at least as far as I can see, and uh, with the result that the employment picture continued to worsen after the official end of the recession. So people say it's a lagging indicator. Not so. It's uh, it's coincident uh, Always has been, and and in, in fact, in the old government uh, economic series that of the leading indicators, uh, coincident and lagging indicators, the employment was always a coincident indicator. Um, <clears throat> employment right now, just to put that into perspective, and as reported, um, dropped. And, and my contention on the broad economy uh, is that. Uh, Coming uh, out of 2007 and the beginning of the breaking of this uh, terrible systemic liquidity crisis that we're in, um, the economy plunged, plunged through 2008 into 2009, and then has been bottom bouncing for a period of time, and now is starting to head down again. Uh, you tend to see that in the employment numbers. The employment numbers never recovered. And in fact, uh, the employment numbers today are below where they were 10 years ago. That's how severe the decline has been, and that's despite a 10% growth in the, in the U.S. population. So we, we are right now in, 
uh, still in the midst of, of, of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Yet if you look at the happy numbers that come out of the Bureau of Economic Analysis every quarter, um, and, and you look at the happy uh, call, which I'll contend was largely political, on the, on the end of the recession in, uh, in, in June of uh, 2009, uh, you'd believe initially that uh, the economy had fully recovered to the level it was before the recession started. Again, an indication of how poor quality these numbers are. Each year they go through a benchmark revision where they have hard, uh, much harder data. And uh, almost invariably, along with the uh, uh, revisions there, you get uh, lowered economic growth. And, and where a month or two ago uh, it looked like the GDP had fully recovered the level it was before the recession, after the last downside revisions, that, that has not happened yet. And in fact, the uh, recession uh, is much deeper than had been previously indicated. And you'll continue to see that in, in, uh, in future revisions. Eventually, the numbers will get more meaningful. But again, that GDP series is, is, is uh, terribly skewed in terms of uh, academically uh, correct uh, theories that are out of touch with uh, reality and the, the, the real world as, as people experience it. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, are they the ones that came up with the criteria for the GDP and for unemployment statistics? Uh, no. Bureau of Economic Analysis is part of the Commerce Department. They handle the uh, what they call the national income accounts, which were uh, initially were developed by the National Bureau of Economic Research, a private uh, concern. After World War II, the government... Um, started publishing the numbers um, that had been the, and and adapted the or adopted the model that had been uh, uh, had been developed. Historically, the uh, quarterly numbers on the GDP um, used to be called the GNP, Gross National Product, uh, go back to the first quarter of 1947, so it's post-war. They have annual estimates that go back to 1929, but but not on a on a quarterly basis. The GNP actually is the the broadest measure of the economy. If you look at the national income accounts, the difference between it and the GDP is that it is uh, the the GDP is um, or the, the GNP incorporates uh, the balance of trade and what they call. Um, The, the transfer payments, uh, that basically the, the payments of uh, interest and dividends on stocks owned by people in the U.S. versus stocks and bonds owned by people outside the outside the U.S. And when you are in a net debtor uh, status basis, um, the balancer usually is negative. And uh, so if you can take that, if you look at the GDP, it'll tend to be more positive than the GNP. That's why the numbers were shifted to uh, the GDP from what used to be the GNP. How interesting. How did you get into looking at government statistics and how you could get accurate reporting with that? Well, I, I started as a consulting economist uh, 30 years ago. I developed some unusual, un unique models on, uh, um, on predicting uh, levels of economic activity. One of my early clients was a large commercial uh, airplane company. 
they had a uh, internally a model that they used for projections of sales based on revenue passenger miles. That was, that was their primary marketing tool, and the, and the model was largely based on what was then referred to as the GNP. I found that, uh, well, they, they were complaining their model wasn't working. I looked carefully at the GNP numbers and realized that there was a problem with, with what was being reported there uh, tied to uh, terrible uh, reporting lags in the trade deficit. And uh, so what I did is I corrected the numbers for them model worked with those corrections, and uh, uh, later the government did revise its GNP numbers to reflect that, but over time now, the government's numbers have become so uh, massaged and modeled, uh, uh, again, they're, they're, they're useless for uh, forecasting what's, ha- what's happening in the real world. But I realized at that time I had to know what was going on um, with, with the data, and I, I talked with a number of clients I had and uh, people I knew had been involved in the, the, the system and looked into it over time. And um, what I found was that there are basically two ways that the numbers have been misstated over time, effectively manipulated. Um, the, the, the first way is what most people think of when you talk about um, manipulated uh, statistics, and that is where you have a particular event. And... Uh, uh, keep in mind that modern economic reporting started after World War II. Before World War II, the only thing you had uh, was a crude industrial production index published by the Fed. Um, most people looked at the stock market as an indicator of, of what was happening in the economy. When the uh, Great Depression hit, no one really had a good sense as to how bad it was until well after the the fact. Uh, I mean, they knew things were bad, but they didn't have any, any good measurements of, of, of what was happening. But in the... Uh, so you figure, you know, by the late 40s, these popular numbers that we see today had been introduced. It took politicians about a decade to really start uh, playing with them. And uh, as early as the Kennedy administration, you saw some... Uh, um, ways of handling uh, discouraged uh, workers, measuring discouraged workers, uh, and not a, not as part of the primary employment number. These are people who were unemployed by every definition, except they, have it, they, they hadn't looked for uh, work in the last four weeks because they'd given up looking for work because there are no, no jobs to be had. Uh, I'll come back to that when we get into the employment area. Lyndon Johnson was noted for reviewing the uh, GNP numbers from the Commerce Department before they were published. And if he didn't like the numbers, he'd send them back to the Commerce Department and keep doing so until they got them right. In uh, Richard Nixon's error, he tried to play with the labor statistics. Uh, all sorts of things went on. He, didn't, he wasn't successful. He, he had a lot of opposition in, in the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, not much. Uh, I don't have anything from any stories on the Ford administration and the Carter administration. Uh, uh, Washington Times. I caught the administration playing with the inflation numbers. Um, the Reagan administration. We started to see some major changes, both in the way, uh, largely in uh, uh, methodological shift, which I'm, I'm going to get to. Uh, but you did have. Uh, 
uh, an incident at the time of the stock crash in 87 when uh, the trade data were uh, understated and then or overstated and then understated and that was used to try and uh, rally the dollar. Um, the Fed had to be involved in that, and as well as the U.S. Treasury, it had to, had to do again with the flow of uh, of, um, of trade. But the weakness in the dollar had been a key factor behind the stock crash. And this was aimed at trying to stabilize the system. It did help to stabilize the system. You got into the Bush administration. Uh, first President Bush was up for re-election uh, against uh, Mr. Clinton. And he had the problem of a recession, which the end of which was called early by the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, which again is one reason the you have people saying that employment's a lagging indicator. Um, but a senior person at the Commerce Department went to a very senior person in the computer industry and said, "Hey, look, we've got to get uh, uh, George reelected. Um, can you boost the reporting of uh, computer sales to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is the agency that handled the the, the GDP?" They did. Uh, the reported numbers improved. The computers very big portion of the GDP, particularly with the way the numbers are now deflated. Um, and uh, uh, people, you know, the, uh, President Bush started talking about how the economy was reported, was improving, and people thought he was out of touch with reality. The average guy has a pretty good sense of what's going on. Uh, it's tough to fool him. I mean, you can fool some people, but the bulk of the people have a have a sense of you know where inflation really is, where the economy really is, where unemployment really is. Uh, and then the Clinton administration came along, and they, they were as masterful as the Johnson administration, um, changing uh, survey counts. They'd always have a reason for doing that. But for example, in the the uh, employment the unemployment survey, which is done every month in the March of each year, they uh, they piggyback on that. The poverty survey will. In the March of the year before re-election, uh, they um, reduced the uh, survey from 60,000 households roughly to 50,000, eliminating largely 10,000 households in the inner city. Uh, so we'll model you know, whatever the differences there. And, of course, uh, you saw a big drop in inner city unemployment and the poverty rate went down. And, it was all just a careful manipulation of of, of, of the data. Um, uh, the, the Bush administration, number two, Obama administration. Um, I have not uh, seen uh, in some direct manipulations as you, you had them before. There have been some suspicious times. But the biggest factor and what's caused... Uh, Really, the, the 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 divergence between government reporting and common experience and what most people um, believe is really happening uh, have been methodological changes. Talk about those. That is uh, uh, probably best seen with the um, consumer price index. Now, the consumer price index actually has been in existence in some form back into the late 1800s, but it became popular as a way of adjusting uh, wages and 
such as uh, as the uh, auto uh, unions negotiated contracts with a CPI measurement for wage increases. Can you talk to us about what the consumer price index is meant to do and meant to mean? Very simply, it's supposed to measure the change in uh, prices in consumer goods and services. And as uh, designed and as reported, and I think the way most people think of it, it was intended as a measure of the cost of maintaining a constant standard of living. Using very simplistic terms, uh, they'd measure a fixed basket of goods. So they'd measure a pound of beef, say a gallon of gas, a gallon of milk, whatever the price of that basket was. They'd then do the same thing the next year. And uh, whatever the percentage change was there, that's how much your income had to have gone up by in order to have the same standard of living as you had the year before. John, do you think that goods and services end up going through inflation given that we use the currency that we do, paper currency? Do you agree with that? Or I, I think we're, we're effectively doomed to inflation. In fact, I think it's going to get a lot worse. If you look at uh, inflation historically... Um, Robert Sarr of the University of Oregon uh, uh, publishes estimates on consumer prices. Uh, before before 1913, the, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the entity that publishes the CPI and also calculates the unemployment and employment measures that you'd mentioned earlier, um, pu- publishes the CPI since 1913. Sarr takes it from 1913 back to uh, uh, 1665 in the early American colonies. And what you'll see is that basically from 1665 up to the point of uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve in um, 1913, it's actually its implementation, 1914, um, and up to the point where Franklin Roosevelt uh, took us off the domestic gold standard, prices over uh, almost 300 years there were, were very little changed. Um, um, you, you'd have, you did have periods of, of high inflation, usually around wars. You saw that around the American Revolution, the War of 1812, uh, Civil War, uh, World War I. Uh, but uh, those periods of inflation were always followed by periods of deflation, and that tended to bring you back to you know, a fairly constant level. For much of that time, that was due to the system being on a gold standard. The gold standard effectively imposed uh, um, limits on what the governments could do and uh, effectively controlled the money supply. Uh, but Mr. Roosevelt, Franklin, had a problem in the 30s, faced with the Great Depression, wanted to um, uh, become Keynesian, uh, spent a lot of money to to buy the government out of, uh, or to buy the country out of uh, um, a terrible economic downturn, if, if possible. He couldn't do that under the gold standard, and that's why he eliminated the gold standard um, dom- dom- domestically. And um, the effect of, I'll call it the debt standards, what he put us on, and ever since, administration after administration generally has expanded the uh, amount of debt, the amount of money and um, at a pace that effectively dooms you to uh, perpetual inflation. And at some point it gets out of control. Historically, uh, over you know, the last 
almost 2,000 years, there have been a very large number of uh, fiat currencies where they're not backed by uh, uh, hard assets such as gold or or silver. And uh, all but the ones that are currently operating now, I mean, most of them have uh, disappeared in uh, uh, hyperinflation or just virtually becoming uh, worthless because the government's always found it uh, too tempting to Put a little extra money beyond what was uh, backed um, by gold or silver, eventually making making them fiat and and, and just running wild with it. <clears throat> Again, I'll I'll come to back to that in a, in a couple of minutes. But with the CPI um, in the early '90s, you had uh, Mr. Greenspan, then Fed Chairman, and Boskin who was uh, head of uh, President Bush's, um, the first President Bush's Council of Economic Advisors, um, started uh, putting forth a story as to how the consumer price index uh, over, overstated inflation. And if you ask them, well, how does it overstate inflation? The answer simply was, well, let's, if steak gets too expensive, uh, people will buy more hamburger, and if they buy more hamburger, then their cost of living is lower. And that's not reflected in the CPI. Well, of course, it's not reflected in the CPI because that's uh, contrary to the concept of uh, uh, measuring the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living and having to switch from steak to hamburger or chicken uh, because steak's gotten too expensive is not maintaining a constant standard of living. Uh, the average person um, wants a CPI measure that... Uh, gives them a, a, a real estimate of what they need to stay ahead of inflation. Um, and the old measure, the old measure uh, did it, but uh, in the 90s, they started changing the, the system over to a substitution-based system. What does that mean? Instead of uh, you know, just measuring a pound of steak, in, in, in theory, I mean, this is where they want to take it. You know, people start buying more hamburger because it gets more expensive. They reduce the weight of steak and increase the weight of hamburger in the, in the uh, CPI. So it reflects people's behavior that's forced by rising prices, um, as opposed to measuring what people needed in, to get in the way of increased income to maintain uh, you know, the, the constant, uh, that constant standard of living, the, uh, buying the steak instead of having to, being forced to buy hamburger. Don't you think that most money managers and investors have not taken into account when looking at what types of assets to get involved with the inflation model that you're talking about? Very few people look at the difference here in terms of their investment models or, or, or investment targets. And that's a very, very serious problem. The reason they, they wanted to do this, and it was expressed at the time, and we even heard it again uh, most recently in uh, the, the deficit reduction talks around the, the debt ceiling uh, negotiations. Back in the early 90s, the idea is, well, if we can only reduce the reported rate of inflation, we can reduce the uh, annual cost of living adjustments in Social Security, and with that, we can reduce the deficit. And it was a way that the people in Congress could move to reduce the deficit without anyone having to do the politically impossible thing of voting against the deficit. Um, that was the purpose behind it, and I, I take great offense at that because I, I think you'd be doing much better to just be honest with people. Say, hey, look, we're going to cut back on your cost of living adjustment. 
uh, we can't afford it, as opposed to putting out a phony CPI number, uh, which is relied upon by other people of, for uh, contracts in terms of wage increases or rental increases, or for someone who's looking to invest and says, well, I want to at least beat the rate of inflation. If you're getting too low a number, you're, you're not meeting uh, the pace of increase that you need to stay ahead of inflation. And that's one thing that ten- tends to puzzle people. Yeah, my income's going up, but I can only buy less with my income. I'm not staying even, not getting ahead. That's the reason. Do you have something on your site once people join your newsletter? I don't know if it's part of the analysis behind and beyond government statistics, but do you have something that people can look at the correct inflation rate, some type of model? Because I know that most of the ones that they are using are wrong, really wrong. My site is shadowstats.com, and I have alternate measures of the CPI, the unemployment rate, and GDP. Uh, the graphs on that are publicly available. Anybody who wants to look at the headlines um, for the, uh, in the current commentaries, I put out a weekly commentary, a lot of publicly available information. But if you look at the headlines, we, we always put the the current number in the headlines. And what what I do is I try to look at the CPI net of the changes that have been made in methodology. I, mean, I use a government's estimate as to how much these different changes have uh, knocked off the reported level of the consumer price index. And since 1980, it's about five percentage points. There's another two percentage points there from things that they don't think are methodological, and I'd argue that um, with them. Uh, since 1990, it's a little over three percentage points. If we just started at 1990 and the changes made since 1990. So somewhere between where the government's currently reporting inflation at 3.6%, somewhere between 7% and uh, a little over 10% would be what my estimates are in terms of um, where the inflation would be if you were still measuring not only a constant standard of living, but there's the cost of maintaining a constant standard of living, but there's a, there's another element to the changes made here. Um, they call hedonic adjustments, where they have mathematical models that uh, reduce the rate of inflation generally for uh, quality improvements that the average person uh, has no idea that he's uh, enjoying. Um, quality changes are are necessary adjustments to to a number of prices. Uh, for example, let's say you have a uh, an eight ounce candy bar, and uh, in one month, and then the next month, it's a six ounce candy bar, but it's still in the same size package as the eight ounce candy bar. Um, in theory, the people who do all the surveying for the Bureau of Labor Statistics will pick up that difference and they'll adjust the pricing accordingly. Um, on the other hand. If the government, and this, this happened some time back, and they, it was so egregious they, they actually uh, stopped doing this particular thing. But in principle, it's the same thing that goes on, and it's a simple example, so, so I'm going to use it. Uh, the uh, government uh, mandates a formula change to gasoline to improve air quality. <clears throat> one, in, uh, one instance, uh, it added suddenly 10 cents per gallon to the uh, cost of gasoline. The Bureau of Labor Statistics did not include that in the uh, inflation rate because it was deemed a quality improvement. 
Well, again, this is where academia perhaps uh, diverges from the common experience, and I love the people in academia, but you have to take a lot of what's put out there as nice theoretical discussion as opposed to a measurement of uh, the the real world as most people look at it. The guy is filling his uh, tank of gas um, isn't thinking, oh boy, I'm uh, paying 10 cents a gallon here for better air, which actually was not the case in terms of what happened with that particular additive. Um, He's thinking, um, well, I'm paying 10 cents more per gallon to fill my tank of gas. Got to get to work. It's it's what what he's looking at out of pocket. Um, You have a... um, Another example is in the area of uh, uh, school textbooks. They have a way of um, oh, the extremely um, uh, complicated model of um, estimating uh, quality changes in school textbooks, including whether or not the textbook has a color picture in it or black and white. The average student doesn't care. I mean, unless he's an art student or something, but the average student doesn't care whether he's got a color picture in his textbook, his concern is how much am I going to be out of pocket to, to buy my textbooks for the semester? Um, it's what people are out of pocket. And, and, and then they, they, they do this in a number of areas, mostly where they have the ability to reduce the reported rate of inflation. Um, you look at airline travel. Now there, I mean, if you're going to do this consistently, uh, I would think there might be an adjustment there for... Uh, uh, now all the hassle that people have to go through in terms of uh, uh, security at airports. and How about having to pay extra to put their bags on the plane? Yeah. Well, so, some of that they me- they measure, but the stuff that you can't put a direct measure on, they have models for. And they model the, they model the good things, which will reduce the reported rate of inflation. The bad things generally are not modeled, which would increase the rate of inflation as they report it. So when I'm talking a difference of seven percentage points based on what happened in 1980, I mean the way they reported things in 1980, about half of that half of the difference there is tied to their trying to move the CPI to a substitution-based measure, and they they did not do that fully. They've they, they've tried to mimic a substitution base there. Uh, the other half is largely tied to hedonic adjustments that the average person. It doesn't consider when he's looking at what he's out of pocket. And again, what do I need to spend to maintain my standard of living? The average guy, again, is not looking at uh, the, the nebulous quality improvements that some of the academics are looking at. You are addressing systemic collapse. You are giving time frames for this that you're seeing windows of time in which we're in a state of moving into a collapse You were interviewed on a show and you talked about the fact that you can't raise enough taxes and you can't cut enough government spending to take care of our deficits. That was very scary to me because it brought home that 99% of us are probably thinking that we're going to be able to get out of this, but not being able to embrace those two elements. After listening to you, those two elements tell me that we are in a collapse now, possibly, or we don't know we're headed for a collapse. But what really bothered me, as you said, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, we could have changed our future some years ago, but we didn't. And now we can't change it. Talk about that 
explain it and distill it to the audience. I know that many people would say, oh, that's gloom and doom and everything, but there comes a point where you have to face a systemic condition that's going on that's not being embraced. I think we're all better off facing what we have to face, knowing what we need to know, and then moving in our decision quotient from there. Please go ahead. Well, I'm an optimist at heart. I try to give the story as straight as I can. Um, and unfortunately, thing, things are not only not bright here, but as you um, indicated, uh, in many ways, to a certain extent, uh, hopeless. We have, a, we have a very bad time ahead of us. On the other hand, there there is good news in all that. And uh, I mean, it's really bad news that they're not able to fix a system. The good news is that if the individual knows what's going to happen, he can he or she can prepare himself and get through it okay. Before you start talking about that, can you explain why you have said that we can't raise our taxes enough or cut our spending enough yep. to balance um, anything? Explain I'm, I'm that. I'm going to do that. I okay, just wanted good. to give a little positive sure, sure. Up, up front before, before, <laughs> get, before getting into it. Uh, what happened, again, back Franklin with Franklin Roosevelt, he puts us on the debt standard. And it, it keeps uh, expanding, and you get into uh, the post-1997 crash period with Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Greenspan, and he recognized that we had a very uh, major structural problem that he didn't have a way of addressing, at least not in a healthy manner. Um, the, the structural problem was that the uh, average household uh, could not stay ahead of inflation with with income, and this wasn't due uh, to the misreporting of of the inflation uh, so much as it was to uh, uh, a, a terribly explosive uh, uh, trade deficit and a lot of uh, higher paying jobs disappearing offshore. Um, if you look at uh, income, uh, average weekly earnings. Uh, they're lower uh, today than they were in 1973, adjusted for inflation. That's as reported by the government. Um, if you look at average household income or median household income um, adjusted for the for inflation, um, the most recent reporting of 2009, and it hasn't gotten better, uh, is below where it was before the uh, 2001 uh, recession. And uh, if you use a CPI for reporting, which is the way most people look at that, it's it actually the average household income, excuse me, median household income, the middle level of income adjusted for inflation is below where it was in 1973. The average guy cannot stay ahead of inflation. Now, there, there's a problem there if you're looking to have sustained economic growth because income generally drives economic growth. And uh, where the consumer accounts for over 70% of the GDP, if consumer income isn't growing faster than inflation, uh, a good forecast is that the economy is not going to be growing faster than inflation. Um, that, that's fundamental. The only way that you can get faster growth um, is theoretically short term, either through debt expansion or, or savings liquidation. Uh, and we've had both, but what Greenspan did was he encouraged the debt expansion and, and where we've been Living on the debt standard, it, the, the whole debt picture, both at you know, the consumer level, the corporate level, and certainly at the federal level, just exploded beyond control. In 2007, um, that uh, came to a head. We entered um, 
a systemic solvency crisis. We had a collapse of the uh, many elements of the debt structure in uh, 2008. And uh, yet the consumer's uh, income circumstance is not, not improved. And it, uh, so the consumer's restricted in terms of income growth. He can't, it's not growing faster than inflation on average. But he no longer has available the ability to borrow from the future to make up for the shortfall in his cost of um, and, and, and the cost of maintaining a constant standard of, of, uh, of living. Um, so there, there's no way we're going to see a rapid turnaround in this economy. Um, that's, that's at one side, I and mean, it's one reason that we're in a protracted downturn, one reason it's actually beginning to get worse at this point. Um, the uh, other side is that uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who is uh, a, a great manipulator of the data, uh, in his administration, they, they worked out the current uh, reporting of the um, the budget deficit to, on a cash basis, cash in, cash out, and or the Social Security system up until this year had actually been uh, generating a cash surplus. More was being paid in than was being paid out. Supposedly, these funds being built up and held for future Social Security payments. Um, but that, that they were counted as part of the general fund, so that the surplus in Social Security uh, offset uh, uh, some of the deficit in the, in the other general accounts and, and made the deficit look better. Isn't that an accounting fraud? Uh, yeah, but the federal government's been doing it, and it was approved by Congress. I mean, it's not the first time they, they've done something that is counter to what you might do in the, in the private sector. And then along came the... Uh, uh, what were then the big ten accounting firms in the seventies, and they said, "Hey, U.S. government, you know you're running the largest uh, business on earth. You should have an accounting system that's, you know, the same same as uh, used by large corporations. You generally accepted accounting principles." And after thirty years, they finally started publishing official, uh, generally accepted accounting principle statements. Although there was argument over whether or not they should show the annual deterioration in the uh, unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare uh, on a net present value basis. They, they, they put it in a footnote. They don't add it into the statement. They should be adding it into the statement the same way General Motors used to before it went under. Please explain what an unfunded liability is so people can be with you on the same page. Well, it's uh, in other words, the government commits to spending money, uh, but it, doesn't, uh, it, it, it hasn't at the same time put in place a mechanism to pay for it, or to fully pay for it, so that over time, uh, the liability, say in Social Security or Medicare, is going to grow, but the taxes, the the uh, payroll taxes that would cover that, or whatever has to be done in terms of retirement age, is not adjusted, so that the funds that will be covering it fall way short of what's going to be paid out. So the government's taken on obligations for the future that it can't deliver on. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, the most egregious element of this, and this is when I first started writing about hyperinflation, took place in 2004. The government revamped the Medicare program, put in prescription drugs. That package alone added roughly $8 trillion of unfunded liabilities to the government's balance sheet. And at that time, the total federal debt was about $8 trillion, effectively doubled the government's obligations at that point in time. Now, they've been playing games with the reporting here, but generally what you're seeing is that the actual deficit, including how much 
deterioration we're seeing in those unfunded liabilities uh, each year. And again, the net, the net present value brings it into current dollar terms. How much money do you need in hand today to cover that obligation down down the road? Um, we're seeing an actual deficit in the uh, range of four to five trillion dollars. Is that per year? Per year, yes, annual deficit. That's what can't be covered. I mean, there, you can't. You could take a hundred percent of uh, people's income and corporate profits and, and taxes. Uh, you'd still be in deficit. You could cut every penny of government spending except for Social Security and Medicare, and you'd still be in deficit. It's uncontainable and certainly not sustainable. That's what people have been talking about. Uh, that gave us all this. Uh, um, big debate in Washington, and Washington showed they did not have the political will to even uh, consider meaningfully addressing the, the problem here. They don't have the, the government does not have the ability to pay the obligations that it has already taken on, and that it is still taking on. Uh, those ob- obligations continue to increase. Now, most most countries uh, in that type of a position historically. Uh, have done uh, a very simple thing, and that is when they get to the point that they can no longer uh, raise adequate funds and taxes, they, they print the money. And you end up with a hyperinflation and the currency collapses. And, and we're going to talk about that because there's a lot of confusion about what hyperinflation is, printing money, M3, and how the money supply has to do with inflation. The, indeed, there are a number of issues there, but in terms of uh, uh, the collapse... We got to a point, but the, the the debt system was collapsing, and in many areas it actually did collapse. In August of 2008, uh, September, that time frame with the failure of uh, Lehman Brothers, a run on the banking system started, and when uh, those hollering for help saying, oh, we've got to put forth a big stimulus package here, we're going to see a collapse of the uh, banking system, it'll go you know into a Great Depression. Uh, next week if, if we don't. They, they weren't kidding. The system was on the brink of collapse. Now, we shouldn't have gotten to that point, but we did, having gotten there. Uh, the Fed was in a position, and, and the Fed ostensibly is there to keep inflation under control and maintain uh, sustainable economic growth. That's fine on the periphery, but their primary function is to maintain the solvency of the banking system. It's a private entity. It's owned, owned by the uh, commercial banking interest or those related to it. The Fed was not going to let the system collapse, and neither was the federal government. I, I mean, this is absolute failure in terms of the government and the Fed if, if it happened. So what they did was they spent whatever money they had to create. Um, they made whatever guarantees they had to do to keep the system from crashing. And it was not just the U.S. It was on a global basis. The Fed can create an infinite amount of money, and they showed their colors at that time. Uh, and that was, they were not going to let the system collapse. There's a cost to what they did, and that's inflation. But when you say the system, John, you're really talking about the banking system, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, basically, the banking system, but the banking system collapses. That's your flow of money and, and, and credit. The flow of credit has not returned. I mean, people still uh, are able to get their money out of uh, out out of banks. That's the difference of what happened in the 30s. The 30s, you had a banking system collapse. Many banks went out of business. And when those banks went out of business, the depositors lost all their money. There was no FDIC to, to, to give you your money back. 
so that uh, at that time, that, that there you had a, a grand contraction of the money supply, and you, you had I mean, the money supply contracted by about a third, and you saw a deflation that would be measured at roughly the same magnitude. That's something that uh, Mr. Bernanke has sworn to uh, not allow happen. I was under the impression that a great deal of the bailout went to credit default swaps and banks directly in derivative instruments. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was spread where it was needed to uh, prevent the collapse. I mean, all sorts of things. I mean, AIG, you wouldn't think would be, wouldn't come to you off the top of your head as something that you would have seen threatening this, but they had the exposure on the uh, credit default swaps. And um, they were effectively bankrupt with what they had had taken. If they, if they failed, the banks that had the credit default swaps behind their instruments would have failed. Are we on the Titanic with respect to really embracing that Medicare and Social Security will not be here in 10 years or less? Well, if what I think is going to happen here is within that time frame, you're going to see, I think we're on the brink of another threatened system, a systemic collapse. Uh, and I would not be at all surprised to see some extraordinary actions from the Fed and even from the federal government, despite all the uh, political uh, rancor that you have there. How would that manifest itself? Give us an example. For example, you just had a a large bank that had an infusion of capital from uh, a very wealthy individual. That wouldn't have happened if if the bank were not having um, some capital problems. The banking system uh, basically is having ongoing solvency problems. That's why you're not seeing... Uh, meaningful bank lending, many meaningful growth in bank lending. Um, it, uh, the banks have impaired balance sheets, and they say, "Oh yeah, we can't. Uh, we're looking for credit-worthy people to lend the money to, but we can't find them." Uh, that's nonsense. There are a lot of credit-worthy people out there, and I mean, there's an element of that. But the the, the big problem is that the banking system is is not uh, functioning normally because. They're, they're largely insolvent. Everything the Fed has done has not solved that problem. Everything the Fed and the government have not done have, have not solved the economic problem. The, the economic and systemic solvency crisis that we uh, we had uh, um, blowing up um, several years ago are still in play. They kicked the kicked the uh, can down the road, and now we've caught up to the can, and uh, we're up against a, a cliff and. Uh, not too much further that they can do to kick it. But if they feel there's a risk of systemic collapse, talking banking system, again, I would fully expect they'll do everything they can to prevent it from happening. It's, again, not just U.S., but, but, but global. I mean, all the talk of the fantastic sums lent by the Fed to foreign banks in the last crisis. If they know what's happening, uh, if they know where the threat is, they'll find a way to prevent it from collapsing and threatening the rest of the rest of the system. So bring us to 2014. What are you envisioning is underway in the next couple of years? Well, um, right now in 2012, I figured things would come to come to a head about this time, and they uh, they have started to. The people in Washington. 2012 or 2011? 2012. Okay. Um, 2011. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm operating a year ahead here in my okay. mind. No, what well, we've just been through. We're, I know we're in 2011. Right. Um, the government demonstrated that it does not have the political will to, to fix the system, and, and it would be extremely painful for them to do so. How would they do it, though? That's what I don't understand. I'm lost. Explain it. Well, they, they basically, I mean, we, we've gone too far here. Uh, again, some years back, this could have been done without too much pain. 
but increasingly the government's taken on the role of uh, supporting society. It does not have the ability to support society as it's trying to do it, basically because the demographics no, no longer allow it. Uh, we have a we have an aging population that is uh, looking to drain a lot of that, a lot out of the system and Social Security and Medicare. Um, that was all set up for them, um, and and you have you have a government right now that's intent upon expanding the social programs. We already have the health care program in place. There's just no ability to uh, raise adequate uh, funding to to cover that, which dooms you eventually to hyperinflation. And and initially, I was looking at that towards the end of the decade, but because of the crisis, because of the way it was handled, the way it's being handled now. Um, I, I think we've, what we're seeing now will uh, take us into a hyperinflation. I can't give you precise timing on it. I put a, an outside time of 2014 on it. But I think we're in the, in the early throes of the factors that will, will, will do that. Key here is the U.S. dollar. Um, it is uh, the world's reserve currency. It's not just the U.S. money supply but it's U.S. money supply that's also outside the United States. That's, that's not measured in the traditional money supply measures. About $7 trillion in cash sitting out there that can be dumped on the U.S. overnight if, if people lose confidence in the dollar, and they're losing confidence in the dollar. That's what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. If you look at what, uh, um, in the wake of the, uh, this, this great deal that was put together in Washington, and I use it great facetiously, uh, <laughs> You have um, the dollar basically is uh, um, seen an extraordinary plunge. I mean, you look what happened to gold. We're seeing some profit taking now, um, but it's uh, uh, the reaction in the gold. That you saw a similar reaction in the Swiss franc until the Swiss, Na- Swiss National Bank came in and started do- doing all sorts of things to try and 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 stall the dollar's rally there, and they were successful in doing that for a little bit. But when you have the fundamentals in, in, in play, there's very little that inter- intervention does on a long-term basis. It's, it, all the effects are short-lived. Do you think the downgrade was a synthetic act, or do you think it was organic and real? In other words, do you feel that that was a manipulated function, or that's they're reflecting the truth? It's uh, not as it appears. I'd like to know your take on it at this time. To whatever you're comfortable to share. Alan, Alan Greenspan explained it. He says there's no no risk for U.S. debt because we can always print the money. <laughs> that is that is the way rating agencies traditionally look at sovereign states and the, the rating their debt in the sovereign currency. So on that basis, you would never see a downgrade from a AAA for the U.S. dollar. Um, now. The rating is a uh, it's it's a uh, measurement of uh, risk of default, and if it's just a matter of the U.S. running running the printing presses, there's no risk of default. Therefore, you have a AAA rating. Um, with the debt ceiling, though, and the threat that maybe the debt ceiling would not be raised and that there would be an actual event of default, that risk of default. Um, went above zero. And so from that standpoint, whether it was a risk of default in in August or risk of default the next time the debt ceiling comes up, 
they were justified in, in lowering the, the, the debt rating. Okay, that's it, what it I It really wondering. had nothing to do with whether or not they were bringing things under control. Again, they can always print the money, but it's because you had this artificial uh, limit on that. Well, it's not artificial, it's a real limit on that, that, that actually raised the risk of default. And um, uh, there are all sorts of politics there. I mean, the... I feel for the people in the rating agencies. They don't, uh, and I know they're 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 heavily uh, uh, castigated, and a lot of things have happened there that are absolutely horrible. Uh, but I do know that generally, it's uh, I have had an, an involvement uh, in in the industry, and it's uh, I can tell you that uh, the agencies uh, don't want to do harm by the by the rating. That's a, generally. Uh, on the other hand, they have to give the uh, investing public their 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 best assessment. It's a um, it's it's a very difficult balancing act, and uh, something like the U.S. Uh, debt rating, uh, those agencies had to be under tremendous pressure not to lower the rating, not only from the federal government. I mean, you get you get the president of the United States calling the head of the rating agency. That's that's a difficult circumstance for the rating agency, uh, but also the uh, the big consumers of the ratings and the best customers uh, uh, for the uh, rating agencies, the banking industry, the banks were all pressing them not to downgrade. So uh, a very, it actually is a courageous action on behalf of S and P. Um, it's caused them a lot of uh, uh, difficulty. I can understand what they did, but. Traditionally, without that uh, debt ceiling deal, uh, I don't think you would have seen any uh, uh, any downgrade. And uh, the fact that they were really concerned about uh, whether or not they were putting forth a sustainable uh, deficit uh, a deficit package, I think, was more bluff and bluster than anything else. Because as long as they're looking at the U.S. being able to print the money to to pay off the debt. It doesn't change the rating. So, there's two types of debt: the national debt and the public debt. You talked about the national debt being composed of public debt. Can you just well, if, if the, the, the the gross federal debt right now is running over 14 trillion. Um, of that, there's a portion that is held by the public and a portion that is held largely by the Social Security Administration for the funds that the government has taken from it to use in, in general spending. Um, if you look at the accounting, even on the gap statement, they tend to net out the because the, the Social Security Administration is included in the government accounting. So um, you have one part of the government owing, owing it to the other part of the government, so they net that out and, and don't count it in the total. Uh, <clears throat> I would argue it should be counted in the in the total uh, because those funds you know, people were paid in terms of uh, uh, taxes for Social Security and Medicare. That was all. Uh, that that was the uh, basis on which those uh, funds were raised, and I think it's reasonable for people to expect that they uh, would be put into uh, a trust fund and there for, there to help uh, pay them off, rather than uh, just being ignored and say, "Oh, well, we can we don't have to worry about that. We can always change the way we handle Social Security." They showed again in these negotiations that they don't have the political will to do that. You've talked about the fact that basically this country's bankrupt. Yeah. And 
for those people listening to a lot of different elements of what you're saying, this is, I guess, where we start to embrace hyperinflation. And what is systemic collapse of the currency? I really want to leave people with the clarity that, and I'd like you to talk about this, that even those of us that have our investments and our assets denominated in U.S. dollars have to rethink the way we've operated in the past. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, eventually, um, I mean, unless the uh, system can be brought into balance, and again, I contend it can't be, I mean, you have, to do so requires slashing uh, the, the social programs. Obama was right when he said the Republicans are trying to break the government social contract with uh, the people. Well, I don't know what social contract exists there, but uh, the basic uh, financial numbers are such that the, the social uh, social programs that have been structured and that are uh, the, the government uh, programs that are still being planned, but what's what's in place. Uh, has bankrupted the, the the country. There's no way the, the the government can raise the funds to cover that. Can I ask you to clarify one thing? Because I'm a little bit confused. Just this one point: when you talked about how you can't raise enough taxes and you can't cut enough government spending to balance anything, then what do we do, John? What, what we what we do is we print the money to pay off the obligations. Either that, or you you do the politically impossible thing of of slashing Social Security and eliminating um, Medicare, much as it's known today. Wouldn't that ruin the confidence in the government and in the dollar and in everything? Well, it's a devil's choice. I mean, no, again, the political will is, is not there to do the slashing. We saw that. There, there's good reason from a political standpoint that people want to avoid doing that because there are a lot of people who are dependent upon that. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think if someone talked honestly with the American people and said, look, we're, we're bankrupt, we've got to change these systems, or... You know, the, everything's going down the drain. That you know, maybe uh, um, I, th- I think you'd find a lot of people that would would rally around that and be willing to sacrifice. Americans have in the past. We we just over we've overspent. But um, when you say we've I, overspent, I, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see that happening. I don't see it being feasible to bring it into balance. And since that w- that's the alternative to printing the money, um, the way these characters work in Washington, we're going to see the money printed and. And, and that dooms you eventually to a hyperinflation. It's just a matter of, of when. It reflects a, a great loss in the, of confidence in the currency. Wouldn't that be better politically to send us into hyperinflation so that the American people don't have to know that we're bankrupt and that there isn't going to be a Medicare or Social Security? Well, I, I think that's a decision that's been made. It's obvious. Uh, all, all along, they keep pushing it, again, the proverbial can down the road, uh, kicking it down the road there. Uh, there is a day of reckoning here. They've always put forth, or at least in the last several decades, put forth the position that the U.S. dollar doesn't matter, the deficit doesn't matter, but it does. There comes a day of reckoning. We're going through that now. And what's happened in the in the last uh, six months is that we've seen the U.S. dollar lose its safe haven status. You look at the uh, disruptions in the Mideast that normally would have created some flight to safety in the dollar, flight to safety was into gold and the Swiss franc. Um, in the wake of uh, this uh, uh, debt uh, deficit uh, negotiation debacle, 
dollar has plunged. The global confidence in the dollar has been largely killed, and it's very difficult to get it back. It's just a matter of the uh, all the dust settling in extremely disruptive, uh, disrupted and unstable markets. The dollar here is heading a lot lower. What happens is, is the dollar declines in value. Uh, oil, which is um, denominated in U.S. dollars, tends to go up in price. That's the way it balances out in the in the marketplace. And the inflation that we've seen recently, the pickup there, has been due to higher oil inflation, but not uh, because of strong demand for oil. It's because of the Fed's policy aimed at debasing the dollar, the quantitative easing. What does the quantitative easing mean in relation to what you're saying? I don't get that part. Well, the quantitative easing by the Fed uh, is basically a policy of dollar debasement. Uh, Bernanke defined it back in 2002. He said we can always always prevent a deflation. He doesn't want a 1930s-style deflation. And he said that the Federal, the federal Reserve and uh, the, the central government could always, in concert, uh, uh, debase the dollar and, and create inflation, when both being the, the, the same thing. Um, the, the way you do that is with a quantitative easing. Uh, I mean, he's pumped extraordinary amounts of cash into the system. Now, it hasn't it hasn't translated through to the money supply. Normally, it would if banks were lending money, but they haven't lent the money out. They've lent it back to the Fed. They've got the, bank, the banking systems largely insolvent. Yet, the rest of the world sees this happening. They know that the long-term picture here is for a weaker dollar. The dollar is being sacrificed. They sell off the dollar. They begin to dump dollar assets. It intensifies. Now we're seeing, we're at a point now that you could have a massive decline in the U.S. dollar at any time. I'm not uh, predicting it for you know, any particular set point in time, but that 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 risk is there. Um, and along with that, you'd have heavy selling of uh, foreign-held U.S. treasuries. Who wins? Who are the winners? Or who would be shorting the U.S. currency and therefore making a profit from the currency getting weaker and weaker and weaker? It's something that we're doing. When we're, we're debasing our own currency. So against the rest of the world, the dollar's, the dollar's declining. People have their assets and the rest of the world um, are doing better than people who have their world denominated in dollars. So 401ks and other types of assets denominated in U.S. dollars are in a high-risk condition. Well, they're, 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 they're losing, they're losing long, long-term value here as the dollar gets debased because that usually will be matched with inflation. You're seeing the same thing with, the, with gold. It's a, it's a leading indicator of where inflation is, is heading. The problem with gold for uh, many traditional investors is that they have a hard time looking at gold as a hedge against inflation because of the fluctuations of the gold and the metals prices. Respond to that, would you? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's volatile, and as, as as is everything in the markets these days. But you go over the last seven years and you look at the beginning of uh, the, the year and the end of the year, uh, gold has in each year outperformed the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Gold gets a, a bad name on Wall Street because the average broker doesn't make any commission on it. And, and, and it's the physical gold that people need to hold here as a hedge and hold it for the long term, not in terms of day-to-day volatility. I'm certainly not looking at uh, <clears throat> estimating any kind of uh, short-term movements in, in uh, uh, gold or currencies. But over the long term, the dollar is going to become worthless. And if you have... Uh, uh, bought uh, gold 
and moved into some of the stronger currencies, such as the Swiss franc, the Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, you'll find that you've been able to preserve the purchasing power of the dollar. <clears throat> I mean, in, in a hyperinflation, I have to find a hyperinflation very simply as one the uh, largest uh, note in circulation before the inflation, in this case a $100 bill, becomes worth more as uh, toilet paper than, uh, <clears throat> than uh, currency, than, than money. That you you have a hyperinflation, and uh, under that type of a circumstance, there's really no upside limit on uh, on gold other than the downside value of the dollar. The dollar goes to zero. I mean, you, can, you know, I don't know where it goes. Let, let's say gold goes up to a hundred thousand um, dollars, and say, well, I'm going to take my profits at this level. You don't have any profits. What you've done is you've preserved the purchasing power of the dollars that you put into the gold. What you've lost is what you had in invested in uh, <clears throat> paper assets and dollars that are now virtually worthless. So that the it, it's not so much that you have a gainer here; it's that you have a loser, and the loser <clears throat> is is a guy that's uh, holding his assets and dollars. From your view now, what is the blind spot in the American conscious mind that is preventing us? from seeing clearly that we're on the road to hyperinflation. What is preventing us from embracing this, in your well, view? Generally, a lack of uh, uh, people talking about it. You're not going to get Wall Street talking about it much. Again, they, they always put forth a, a rosy picture to uh, help sell their products. Uh, you did have uh, some very healthy conversation that took place uh, from some people in the government uh, back during the uh, debt ceiling debate, not only focused world attention on the on the problem, but uh, also for some domestic people. And a lot of people just couldn't care less until they find that they're suffering uh, uh, financially and wonder what, what what happens. I mean, that's that's always always the case. But uh, I, I think you'll find there are a lot more people talking about it today than there were. Years ago. Now, in an example you gave about Zimbabwe as an example of a country that went into hyperinflation, one of the things you said that I thought was interesting is that they were still able to run an economy because they had a black market. Talk about that, but it's what they were doing commercially that enabled them to continue even during that horrible time. Well, they probably had the worst hyperinflation anyone has ever seen. If you took an original $2 bill and made a stack of $2 bills, if they had such a thing in the last iteration of the currency, the, the, the stack of the new currency to equal $2 of the old would literally stretch from the Earth to the Andromeda galaxy, light years high, not, not enough trees on Earth to print, to print the money. Um, yet the, uh, this is over a period of, of uh, a couple of years, and the, and the economy continued to function. People were employed. The reason it was that they had a backup uh, to, to their system in a black market in the U.S. dollar. Somebody get us. We paid in Zimbabwe dollars. You quickly go and convert it into dollars and stabilize it. Effectively, there had a hedge against uh, loss of purchasing power, which in that type of an environment sort of like what you had in the Weimar Republic in Germany. You could go into a fine restaurant one night, have a uh, old story from what happened to uh, have a very expensive bottle of wine with uh, dinner, and the next morning the empty bottle of wine was worth more a scrap glass than it had been the night before filled with the expensive wine. 
and that's how quickly things change. Um, <clears throat> we don't have a backup system in the U.S., and as such, um, th this could be extremely difficult, extremely disruptive to our, our, our system uh, when it hits, and it's... Um, Without a, without a backup, I mean, gold is, for example, is a backup, uh, but few people own, own gold. Is silver a backup, too? Silver is a backup. Some of the stronger currencies mentioned earlier are, 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 are backups. Um, but the uh, uh, Ron Paul is, uh, int has introduced legislation to have gold treated as a, uh, as a currency along with the Federal Reserve notes and that you can exchange the Federal Reserve notes for gold at the market rate. Do you think that they will allow him to get that passed? No. But his, his thinking is, is good in that if something like that were in place for a little while before hyperinflation hit, um, then we'd have a backup system and the effect on the economy would not be quite as dire. But without the backup system, you're going to see disruptions to the food supply chain, grocery store shelves get empty. That's the type of thing that leads to uh, civil unrest. And um... I watched a conversation that James Turk and Edwin Vera talking about many, many different things. But one of the things that Edwin was talking about was that there needs to be legal facilitation on a state-by-state -state level so that there is a backup system in place on a state-by-state -state level. Do you think that that's doable? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, it's been moving through in some states, but it's different circumstance in each state. Some that just make legal the, the face value on the coin, which is is, is useless. Uh, I mean, you need to be able to exchange the Federal Reserve notes for the, the gold content, not a, you have a one-ounce coin that's marked $50, it's, and that's worth uh, $1,700. And, and, and gold, it's, you're not going to spend it as $50. Um, and that's why something what Ron Paul is pushing makes sense. You really need it on, on a national level. But irrespective of that, um, people who own some physical gold effectively have their backup. It's just that the rest of the world uh, doesn't uh, uh, largely, and again, I'm talking rest of the world in the U.S., and um, you don't have a system set up which allows uh, you know, a smooth functioning, functioning in really difficult times. So for someone looking to protect himself in this environment, uh, number one, I think you've got to, well, you, you have to, you have to look at preserving your, uh, your, your, your safety and, 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 and your wealth. In terms of the wealth, you, you can hedge the purchasing power of what you have in the way of current dollar assets with gold, silver, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, Swiss franc, hard assets. I'm, and I'm talking physical, uh, possession of, um, of, of the gold and gold and silver. Um, if things uh, indeed get as bad as I, I believe they're going to, um, and the normal economic system or the normal flow of commerce breaks down, uh, it's uh, probably a very good idea to have a good store of uh, uh, commodities that you'd normally consume uh, as you as you as you would plan for a natural disaster. I mean, I'm sitting on top of the Hayward Fault which is not a good place to be in an earthquake. Uh, yet, yet I would have a store of goods, uh, you know, canned goods and basic necessities to get me through a period of time in the event of a, 
of a major earthquake because it takes the government a long time to respond. Um, what we're faced with here is a potential of a man-made disaster um, where you could be seeing several months before you even get a normally functioning barter system. Uh, and I, I can, once it breaks, I mean, there are any number of ways this thing can, thing can go, but having uh, not only goods uh, for your immediate consumption and needs um, you know, for, for a couple of months, but also having some items for barter. Um, I met a fellow at uh, one time who had been in uh, South American hyperinflation, and he said that the perfect small change um, he'd found was uh, an airline-sized bottle of a high-quality scotch. The point is that whatever you get, don't you get to get things that you might be able to consume yourself. Is you know, in, in the event I am wrong, you, you consume it. You breathe a sigh of relief. It's not costly to do that stuff, but it's a, it's a, it's good basic common sense. You know, the IMF wanted to make their SDRs the kind of world currency. And I know that there are many different agencies and organizations and governments talking about there being a kind of a shift toward a one world currency. Not to complicate anything, but if in fact this is the intent of the powers that be both in and outside of the United States, I can see how a hyperinflationary conditions would serve to be able to transition into something like that. I think it would be horrifying and horrible, but I can see depending upon the game plan of those that run things, how that could happen. I, I don't think that'll happen. Tell us why. That makes me feel good. The uh, Well, look what's happening to the, to the euro. When you work, I mean, the people, and I know there are people who'd like to see a one-world currency, one-world government. Um, when you do that, uh, you, you want to have um, you want to have the countries involved in healthy shape. I mean, if the euro were based on uh, Germany and uh, uh, Holland and uh, Finland and such and didn't have uh, Italy and uh, Portugal in there, it would be a fine, solid currency. But when they put, the, uh, when they put it together, whoever thought that the uh, uh, Germans and the Italians could coordinate fiscal policy uh, didn't know the Germans or the Italians. And uh, as a result, I think the euro is doomed for failure. There was talk. Some people were talking about the Amero, a, a currency union with the between Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. With the way we're going, I don't think either Canada or Mexico would want to have their currency dependent on ours. You, you want the parties involved to be in, in good shape to have a happy circumstance. Otherwise, it disintegrates, as we're seeing with the euro. The euro is not going to last. I may not be saying this correctly, but do you agree that the Chinese are holding a lot of our real estate here? Uh-huh. Do you think that the Chinese moves on our dollar could send us into an accelerated hyperinflation event? Well, uh, I would expect that is uh, what will uh, trigger the hyperinflation here will be some substantial movement out of the dollar um, by a number of current holders, which could include the Chinese. The Chinese already are, made a lot of moves in that direction and certainly have been squawking about it. They also have significant uh, uh, political leverage with it, uh, which uh, they could use in all sorts of ways. Do you think the Chinese currency could be the world reserve currency, possibly? It may be eventually. It's, it's not there yet. 
I mean, where where we go down the road remains to be seen, right? I mean, they they they're still to a large extent tied to the U.S. dollar, and as long as they are, um, they'll suffer some of our inflation. Um, oil prices go up in dollar terms; they suffer that as you know, as long as they're effectively tied to us. I mean, they've been loosening it some, but it, um, I would expect you'd see that break free and. You know, then it'll be a matter of uh, who's who's picking up the pieces when, as the dollar falls apart. I mean, right now, eighty percent of the global currency transactions involve the U.S. dollar and, and one half of it. Um, so it's, uh, however, however it goes, I do imagine you'll see. Uh, you'd have to have a uh, not only a revamped currency in the United States, but uh, a revamped global currency system. I I, I don't see a a one-world uh, uh, currency coming out of this. Uh, okay. I just wanted I to ask you that. The, uh, I mean, whatever happens, and again, there are all sorts of possibilities as to what happens here politically. And Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not into forecasting that. And again, I mean, I can tell you we've got a problem and it's coming to a head, and it's going to come to a head within a certain period of time. How it moves beyond that depends on a wide variety of factors. But the new a new currency system, I would be willing to wager, will have some backing in gold in order to help sell it uh, to the public. And my last question to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time that you're taking to make things perfectly clear. How much do you think the loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar, in this currency, is going to have its weight in spiraling and accelerating the flight from the dollar from inside the United States and also from outside the United States. In other words, how much weight does the now loss of confidence have of people fleeing the currency? Uh, I think very significant. Uh, I, mean, I can't put a number on it, but that's the primary. The loss of confidence in the dollar now reflects loss of confidence in the U.S. government and the U.S. Uh, uh, fiscal balances. If you look at uh, uh, you look at major factors that drive a currency, the fundamentals, um, relative economic strength is a big factor. We're still in recession; it's getting worse. Uh, interest rates were as low as we can go, and uh, Mr. Green, Mr. Bernanke would like to make them lower if he if, if he could. Uh, you see others trying to control their systems are actually raising rates, including the Chinese. So the higher rate uh, tends to make a currency stronger. Um, uh, relative fiscal uh, discipline. Well, we're at the bottom of the barrel on that. Um, relative uh, trade balance. We've got the world's largest trade deficit, and aside from recent generations tied to big swings in oil prices, can you just explain that last part of what you said? When you say we have the world's largest trade deficit, what does that mean? If we, if we didn't have the trade deficit, we'd be manufacturing roughly uh, $700 uh, billion more of uh, goods in the United States. That would have us, if we, if we had, if we were in trade balance, difference here is about $700 billion. How is trade measured? How is trade measured? Yep. How well, is the trade measured? Exports. Okay. We're importing an awful a lot more than we than we uh, export, and uh, we're importing things now that we used to make. We we no longer have the manufacturing base that we had. That's why 
you have a structural problem with individual income. This is due to the very poor trade policies and so-called free trade elements. I mean, the, this is, again, where I have an argument with academics. Um, great theories, but they don't relate to the real world. The theory behind free trade is that you have two countries that are at full employment. One's very efficient making a certain product. The other is very efficient making another product. But they don't trade with each other. You open up trade between them. What happens is the uh, you get more uh, the country that the countries that are most efficient in what they do will make more of those products. You end up with greater production overall, greater wealth. Everyone's happier. That's the rationale used in free trade. Um, or justifying the so-called free trade. Policies. What does the free trade? I understand what trade means, but I don't get what the well, free, free trade. Free trade uh, means it's uh, unencumbered by government regulation, tariffs, and such. Which is we don't have free trade. But the the problem with the the theory is that it requires that all the parties be at full employment. We aren't at full employment; haven't been in uh, decades. And neither of any of our major trading partners. So that when you get a the, say the NAFTA deal, the North Atlantic. Uh, free Trade Association with Canada and Mexico. That type of a circumstance, a country with the um, low labor has the trade shifted to it. So w- all of a sudden we have a b- big trade deficit with Mexico that we didn't have before. A lot of jobs shifting south of the border. Um, with the trade deficit, we owe, we're, we, we're, we're transferring wealth outside the United States. Um, the, the big deficit in this type of a circumstance basically is a way of redistributing global wealth away from the uh, richer countries to the, 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 big, the, the big rich country, in this case the United States, to the rest of the world. And that's what we're suffering from an economic standpoint. And that's why, that's why incomes are not staying ahead of inflation. That's why unemployment is uh, persistently uh, high. Don't you think globalization is one of the roots of this outsourcing and the trade deficit? Yes. Well, it certainly is. Ex- it certainly is exacerbated. And um, when you um, when you have a trade deficit, you owe more, you know, more, owe more to the rest of the world than is, is uh, owed to you. And you're making it up with your currency. The uh, general effect is that your currency gets weaker. Basic supply and demand. So, but it's it's going down the list of the factors that affect uh, um, relative uh, currency strength. Um, the, the other big factor is political stability and uh, good predictor of uh, how the dollar is doing or will do is the uh, popularity or the approval rating of the U.S. president. That's not doing too well at the moment. Uh, so all, all those factors together would normally give you a down dollar, and uh, given the big shake shakeup that we had in confidence from this uh, uh, non-deal in Washington, uh, was, was, was really uh, uh, very powerful in its impact and, and uh, destroyed significant confidence and is going to lead to much weaker dollar in the not too distant future. Are you doing a lot of traveling these days? Are you here a lot in the I US? don't I don't do that much traveling. I do some. Talk about your site and some of the things that we can get once we subscribe to your newsletter. Well, the shadowstats.com 
uh, has a lot of material on it uh, for, for the public, including um, in the right-hand column of the homepage uh, the latest edition of the Hyperinflation Report. The earlier editions are all available. We have archives and everything that's been written on the site. You want to see what's been talked about before. But what's in the Hyperinflation Report, although it's dated April, is still current in terms of what what's happening. Things have unfortunately been unfolding um, along the lines of what we've been looking for. Um, we also have on the site uh, articles on the quality of the different key statistics, uh, show graphs of the uh, alternate measures, and um, which includes uh, estimates of unemployment, the G- GDP, the consumer price index. Uh, I also publish an estimate of the uh, broadest money supply measure, M3, which the Fed no longer uh, publishes. Um, on a subscription basis, what you get is a weekly commentary, which uh, keeps you up to speed with what's happening week after week with the data and any unusual developments in the uh, in, in the markets, as well as the hard data behind the graphs, the alternate measures. I really want to thank you for joining us and for taking your time to lay out the true conditions that we're living in and the attributes that we need to pay attention to to protect ourselves and to be able to have a more prospering future, and also some things that are ahead that are difficult to face. I'm sure it's not easy to be you. As I started out and we started getting into the more negative aspects of this year, right? Uh, I've only been physically assaulted once for my, my views, and that was uh, by a nice lady at a board of directors meeting at a bank in Maine. <laughs> uh, she, you know, she was in tears and picked up a jelly donut and threw it at me. She hit me in my chest, a pretty good arm. And uh, she, the, poor, the poor woman was in tears and said, oh, you have this bad news, bad news. What are, what's the good news here? And the bank chairman stepped in and he said, the good news is you know what's going to happen. You can protect yourself. And if there were a way I could see the government working its way out of, of the circumstance, I'd be yelling it from the rooftops. I, I just don't see any way of this practically working out. So I'm talking more generally about how people can move to protect themselves and ride out the storm, because if they do, uh, once the storm has passed, and, and it will pass, I can't tell you pass, I can't tell you exactly how things are going to end up. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that it can go, but as the system stabilizes, if you've been able to preserve your wealth and assets and maintain liquidity, um, you'll be able to take advantage of very unusual circumstances that that will come forth. John Williams, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Kim.